Well, I, um, when I, as I gather, you know, I, when I come to marriage seminars, I'm used to talking about a number of different things, you know, about marriage itself. But I'm, I'm asked today to speak on prayer, but just maybe a couple of I, quick ideas to sort of put this talk on prayer in context. You know, um, the Bible says that a man should leave his father and mother and cling to his wife. And the two of them become one flesh. Now, that's a strong word, man. That means stick like glue. Cling. Stick like glue. So you got to turn to your wife, and you could even do it now if you want, and just say, you know, honey, if you ever leave me, I'm going with you, you know. <laughs> but you, gotta, you have to work. You have to work at, at unity, because the devil's working to divide you. And if you don't think that's going on, just, just, get, just be married for more than six minutes. Right? I mean, the devil will find every opportunity. And we know that in our times, marriage, of course, has been his ground zero. Because the family is the basic unit of society. It's the, it's the atom, if you will, of society. Now, we know that in the physical world, when we split the atom, tremendous destructive potential goes out. And so it's the same with the family. If we split the family... It just—it has the possibility of just wiping everything in sight out, bringing complete destruction. And so the devil's after you. But don't worry—you got Jesus in your corner. All right, you got—it's going to be all right if you have Jesus in your corner. But again, we have to be clear. You know, one of the sad—I think—well, not sad, but interesting. As cynical as we become about everything in our culture, people still are very idealistic about marriage. And you know the old saying you probably heard before, many people want marriage to be an ideal. And if there's any ordeal, they want to look for a new deal, right? <laughs> now you see, the thing is that I want you to remain idealistic about marriage, but you've got to remember you're not going to be in an ideal marriage. Number one reason, because you are in it. You, you are a sinner, and you married a sinner. And because of that, you're going to have to be in an imperfect marriage that God can begin to go to work in. But you've got to work at it every day. You've got to be with the Lord and work with it every day. Now, the Lord then teaches, and this brings me now to my particular topic with you this morning, about prayer. Now, the Lord says, stay awake, be watchful, and pray, lest you give way to temptation. Now, what is temptation? Temptation is the work of the devil to drag you to hell. And with, with you, your spouse, and your whole family, and everyone else that he can get you to grab with you. So that's why we have to pray. Now, for most of us, though, prayer is difficult. It's a, it's a kind of a conversation with the Lord, but we're, it's not like every other conversation. And so what I want to talk about a little bit today is this idea that um, what is prayer? The, the title of the talk in your thing is The Essentials of Prayer. Uh, the original title I think I was given over a year ago uh, was What is Prayer? And I, I simply draw, most of your notes there are from the Catechism. Now, I'm not going to be giving you a lot of nice little ideas about how you as a couple can pray. That will come with other talks today. I was asked to simply kind of theologically and um, you know, pastorally reflect on what is prayer, whether it's collective prayer, whether you're, or individual prayer, whether it's liturgical prayer, what is prayer? 
Now, I want to make a disclaimer. I, 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 as I say, although I'm not going to talk about how couples can pray together a lot in this talk, I hope you are. So, you know, I'm amazed, though. I mean, I grew up in a Catholic family. Most of you did, too. And we Catholics are terrible about sharing our faith in the home. The idea of couples praying together or even families praying together. You know, growing up, prayer and, and catechism was something that my parents consigned to the priest and the nun. You go over there and talk to them about that. I never, almost never heard from my parents directly about their own relationship with God. And I, I don't even blame them. That was just part of the culture of the time. Right? Don't talk about religion and politics. And, but I, I hope we can get over that. And I hope, first of all, you know how to talk about your relationship with God to your spouse. You say, well, that's kind of embarrassing. Yeah, everything's kind of hard at first. But you get used to it. We learn to pray together. And not just ritual prayers, the rosary, good, do the family rosary, but really honestly, talk to each other about the Lord. You know, hold each other up, pray for each other, out loud in your own words, with tender words. To God, out loud, while your spouse is with you, as you pray for your spouse, and you ask them to pray for you. And all this feeling, uh, it's kind of like awkward, Father. Uh, uh. Yeah? A lot of things are awkward at first, but you get used to it. Alright, so, anyway. Uh, but I'm not here to give you lots of techniques. Some of it will come out, though, as we make our way through these notes. With that in mind, first of all, the cate I'm, most of this stuff I'm drawing is right out of the Catechism. Alright? The fourth section of the Catechism. What is prayer? Now there's some quotes from the saints here, and one isn't a saint yet, but I think he will be one day. Alright? A Ralph Martin there. But we see here, first from Therese of Lisieux, for me, prayer is a surge of the heart. It's a simple look turned toward heaven. It's a cry of recognition and of love, embracing both trial and joy. Now what's beautiful about this definition is that you see that for her, prayer is not just sitting in a chapel with her hands folded in a prayer book or in a liturgy. But prayer is to be in living, conscious contact with God all throughout your day. Now, brothers and sisters, that is the normal Christian life. The normal Christian life is to be in a life-changing, transformative relationship with the Lord and daily to be in living, conscious contact with Him all throughout your day. Now, I've had to make progress in my life like most of you. I'm Just uh, disclaimers here, I'm, I'm 57. That's kind of where I am in my walk. I wasn't all that serious about my spiritual life until my early 20s and when I began to think about the priesthood. Up until that time, I wasn't particularly spiritual. And I can tell you that even through my 20s and early 30s, I could go for a very long time without ever thinking of God or even being aware of Him. I'm all wrapped up in what I'm doing, what I'm thinking, and what's going on, and who I'm debating with, or whatever. But little by little now, as I've been devoted to personal prayer, that's bled over into the rest of my life, so that right now, even in my, I'm very aware of the presence of God, and I've become kind of a mystic on the move, you know? I walk through and I stop and I look at the flowers. I never used to look at the flowers. Or I see the beautiful skies or the rain. And I was up this morning a little early. I had to get up around 3. I just, you know, got up. I went back. But I went down to the chapel and I just prayed. And I opened the window. It was beautiful rain and a cool breeze. And I said, oh, thank you, Lord. You know, heaven's dropped dew from above. There's a beautiful line in the movie, The Color Purple, which I can't recommend. It's a pretty coarse movie. 
But many years ago I saw it and there's a little line, it gets its name, the color purple. There's two women walking through a field with the, with the lilacs in bloom. And <clears throat> one of them, Shug, is a recent convert, you might say. She's been a very sinful woman most of her life and uh, <laughs> she's recently come to the Lord. And then there's Celie, who's been a godly woman but has li lived through a lot of suffering. And these two women are walking through a field with the lilacs in bloom. And Celie, the, the one who lived a hard life, says, I, I was angry with God. And Shug says, sir, he was angry with God. Well, I think God gets angry with us when we walk through a field and misses the color purple. When we walk through a field and miss the color purple. One of God's great creations, the color purple. Come on, get enthusiastic with me. <laughs> now, I cleaned up the language there a little bit. You see the vision there? I mean, you, 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 you want to walk through the field and don't miss... The presence of God in creation. The presence of God in people that you meet all through the day. God is speaking with you. He's interacting with you. All of creation is shouting, I was made by God. God is sustaining me. The scripture says that Jesus holds all creation together in Himself. So the normal Christian life, the life that Christ died to give you, is a life where you're in living conscious contact with Him at every moment of your day. Every moment of your day. That's why Paul says pray always. He doesn't mean stay in a chapel. He means be consciously aware. Now you can't attain this. It's got to be the gift of God. And therefore I would say to you the place to begin to build this in if it is not your usual experience is daily prayer. Even if you just take ten minutes and say I'm giving it to you God. It's all yours. And it belongs to you and no one should take it. And I'm going to be faithful and I'm going to show up and I'm going to spend those ten minutes with you. And I'm going to learn to listen. And that begins to open up your heart and your mind. So that when you're interacting with your spouse, you're aware that God is also there. See, so easily we become forgetful. We become forgetful of the presence of God. Now, with that in mind, so there's this beautiful thing. Prayer is a surge of the heart. A simple look towards turn towards heaven, right? A cry of recognition or of awareness that God is present. Alright, now, St. Teresa of Avila's famous, very quick definition of prayer is that it's conversation with God. Conversation. Now, do you need to be trained in how to have conversation with friends? Do you need to be trained in how to have a conversation with your spouse? You know, we do that naturally, right? And all of a sudden when it comes to prayer, well, I need training. But remember, ultimately, just talk to God in unpretentious, humble words and just say, Lord, right now I'm, I'm struggling a little, you know. I, 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 I'm, I'm here, but there's tension in my family. Lord, I'm, help me, Lord. Help me. Now, this is a beautiful thing. To, so again, just the idea, just, just naturally, beautifully, humbly, in simple words, speak to God about what's going on in your life. We'll look at this more in a minute, but the book of Psalms is a beautiful image of that, isn't it? Those Psalms, are some of them are bold. Some of them are complaining. How much longer, oh God? Huh? Very, every human emotion in the Psalms. And so the Psalms are like a, a model for just that ongoing conversation with God. We'll look at that more in a minute. Now here's my, really my favorite of the three though, Dr. Ralph Martin. How many of you have heard of his book, um, The Fulfillment of All Desire? 
Okay, a good number of you. If you, ha if you don't have a copy, go sell everything and buy one, all right? Okay? And read through it. I mean, it's a beautiful meditation on prayer. And he's drawing from all the Western doctors of prayer, the, both the male and the female saints. So you've got St. Teresa of Avila, and you've got John of the Cross. You've got Francis de Sales, and you've got Therese of Lisieux, and St. Catherine of Siena, and, and, and on and on I could go. You see, we have uh, St. Ignatius. So he draws from all those traditions, and he teaches beautifully on prayer. But here, here's just his very simple definition of prayer. And I like it the most of all, and I'll explain why. At his heart, prayer is paying attention to God. You see, as much as I like St. Teresa's simple prayers conversation with God, one of the problems with us in conversation is that we talk too much, and we don't listen very much. See? And even when we're, we're theoretically listening, we're saying, okay, how am I going to respond to what he's saying? How am I going to respond to what she's saying? You know, we're, so, at his heart, Prayer is paying attention to God. Being aware of His presence. What are you saying right now, Lord? What are you doing in my life? What doors are open? What doors are closed? What are you teaching me about that? What are you saying to me in the fact that my spouse is upset about me, upset about something I've done? What are you saying, Lord? And what are you saying that I've been praised at work and I'm getting a promotion? What are you saying, Lord? Where are you in this? See, paying attention to what God is saying. Now, even in your private prayer, you want to take some time and have the prayer of quiet. You just, shh. Well, let me, let me read something. Shh. Well, let me look at this picture. No, shh. Don't, don't. Just listen. Listen. Now, sometimes we can listen by reading. It's a way of listening by reading a text that God has written and we're so if you read scripture read it with a listening attentiveness right all right God I'm gonna open up the Bible now and you're gonna to speak to me be still my soul and let me pay close attention to every word that you say all right and so there's a, a form of maybe you're reading but you're really paying attention you're listening We've got to do a better job of paying attention to God. We're always running off doing our own thing and then we get into trouble and say, Help! Help, Lord! Uh, and he says, well, I never told you to do that in the first place. <laughs> you, know? Uh, you know? So again, we, we, we want to get better at paying attention to God. Now then, from the Catechism we have some statements here, right? Prayer is the raising of one's mind and heart to God. So the requesting of good things from God. That's intercessory prayer, right? Humility is the foundation of prayer. Only when we humbly acknowledge that do we know how to pray as we ought. So again, we see ourselves, if you will, as man is a beggar before God. So we've got to go before the Lord with great humility, and we'll see in a minute, with childlike simplicity. All right? You know, I am 57 years old, I'm about 6 feet tall, and I'm not going to tell you how much overweight I am. But you know, before God... I assure you, God does not call me Monsignor. Frankly, frankly, if he calls me anything, he calls me Carlito. Right? You know? Little Charlie. I mean, before God, I'm just a little child, and so are you. You know, we're, we're just his little children. All the time, so often, Jesus calls his disciples children. Now, these were grown men he was talking to. But he called them not just children, but little children. Paidios in the Greek. 
Now, in the, in the ancient languages, that's a sign of affection. It's not demeaning, but it is a reminder to us that before God, I don't care how old you are, how smart you think you are, you're just a snot-nosed little kid before God. We're all that way before God. Whatever your titles, whatever letters in front of your name or at the end of your name, whatever you know, pretensions we have about ourselves, Let's go right to the top. The Pope has all these titles. You know, child, uh, he's the um, uh, Pontifex Maximus. He's the servant of the servants of God. He's His Holiness. But, but you know what his greatest title? He, see, he's no more baptized than you or I. And his greatest title isn't any of those. It's the same one you have. Child of God. So before God, whatever our roles, whatever the distinctions, ultimately we're all just a bunch of snot-nosed kids before God. Go before Him with humility, the humility of a little child, filled with wonder and awe and say, Daddy God, Abba, Abba, Father, I come before You. I'm Your son. I'm Your daughter. I love You. Help me. I need everything from You. You know, somewhere along the line when we, we cross into adulthood, we lose that childlike gift called wonder and awe, which biblically is what we call the fear of the Lord, right? What is the fear of the Lord? It is to hold God in awe and to go before Him just like a little child before His Father. You're the biggest man on the planet and you can whoop every other father. <laughs> And I love you, Daddy God. You're my, you're my Father. I love you. Thank you for being so great. In the glory of the Mass, we say, we give you thanks, Almighty God, for your great glory. Right? We give you thanks, in other words, Lord, just because you're so great. Somewhere along the line, we lose that. We need to always try to keep that. Go before the Lord in humility. Go before Him in love. Go before Him in, with wonder and awe. Go before Him with humility. Like a, like a beggar, but remember, a beggar, yes, but a son or a daughter who knows that we need everything from him. Everything. And go before him with gratitude. Okay. Let's continue on in 2560 from the Catechism. The wonder of prayer is revealed besides the well where we come seeking water. There, Christ comes to meet every human being. It is he who is first seeks us and asks us for a drink. Whether we realize it or not, prayer is the encounter of God's thirst with ours. Now, every now and again I go before groups and I ask people to ponder, or in spiritual direction, I ask a person to ponder, what is your deepest and most consistent experience? And people kind of look at me like, oh, I don't know, um, I don't know. You see, it's so deep and it's going on all the time that you don't even know it's there. It's like you might now, if I were to point out, you hear the air, air mover going? You know, well, only when I called it to your attention. Let me tell you what your deepest experience is, because every human being on this planet has it. You have an infinite longing. That is your deepest experience. You have an infinite longing. And that's the image of the woman at the well. She's thirsty. And the Lord says to her, everyone who drinks from this well is going to be thirsty again. That's the infinite longing. And he meets her there. And he engages her on this question of her thirst. And he tries to redirect it. Because you think another drink from this well is going to satisfy you? It will not. 
And to us, he'll say, you think money and power and popularity and all these earthly things and trinkets will satisfy that infinite longing? A finite world cannot satisfy your infinite longing. So I've come to meet you at the well of your longing. And I want you to know a secret. I long for you. I'm thirsty. Give me a drink. You say, well, wait a minute. God has everything. How can God be thirsty? Because the way He set it up, there's something that you have that He can't have unless you give it to Him. And that's your love. He stands at the door and knocks. He, does, he says, behold, I stand at the door and I yank it open and I barge in and I force myself on you. Well, that's, that sounds more like rape. God respectfully knocks and He's asking us to open and if we will open, He will answer. So there is something, and we have to sort of put it in quotes, that God thirsts for. And it's your love. It's your yes. And so prayer is a moment where God's thirst meets your thirst. And His capacity to satiate your thirst is what should start to take place in prayer. So that's what this text is getting at here. Have you ever thought, when we go before God, that God is grateful that we're there? I'm glad you're here. I'm thirsty for you. I want your yes. I'm glad you called on me. Not like, yeah, you call on me again. What do you want now? No. God, if you remember that story, Jesus sought that woman out. He went to her. And at first she says, go away, leave me alone. You're a Jew and I'm, a, you know, go away. But little by little he draws her in. That's a beautiful image of prayer. Now then, by the way, one little detail about the woman at the well. It's very beautiful. At the very end of the gospel, not the very end, but at the end when she leaves Jesus to go into the town, it says she left her water jar and she went to the town. See, that water jar was the thing that she was depending on to collect the things of this world, right? What's your water jar? <laughs> what, do you, what do you need to leave behind? And what will the Lord help you to leave behind so that you won't be thinking that worldly things can ultimately satisfy that infinite longing? Somewhere God wants to enter into that dialogue. She didn't need that water jar after she met Jesus. And you're not going to need a lot of things you think you need. But again, it's prayer where we begin to work this out and the Lord is, goes to work in our heart. Now, where does prayer come from? In naming the source of prayer, Scripture speaks sometimes of the soul or the spirit, but most often, over a thousand times, Scripture, according to Scripture, it is the heart that prays. So there's a beautiful definition then of what is the heart. Paragraph 2563. And this is worth cutting out and pasting up somewhere. The heart is the dwelling place where I am. Where I live. According to the Semitic or Biblical expression, the heart is the place to which I withdraw. The heart is our hidden center beyond the grasp of our reason and of others. Only the Spirit of God can fathom the human heart and know it fully. The heart is the place of decision that uh, deeper than our psychic drives. It is a place of truth where we choose life or death. It's the place of encounter because as an image of God we live in relation. So it's the place of covenant. 
So the heart is where I live, where I'm alone with myself and I'm alone with God, where I deliberate, where I ponder, where I ask questions. And even beyond words, there's those groans, the longing, the yearnings, the sighs. That's why he says it's, it's pre-conscious or pre-psychic, right? It's deeper than our thoughts. It's, it's deep. It's beyond words. It's a very secret place. And we need to withdraw to it. All the pagan philosophers said as much. They said the unreflective life is not even worth living. And how many people today are living unreflective lives? Running here, running there. To what purpose? I don't know. I've got to get to there on time. Wherever. You're all in a big hurry to do God knows what and to go God knows where. And what's it all add up to? So that's why we have to withdraw to that place of our heart where we're alone with ourselves and we're alone with God. And God can speak to us. And He can say, Charlie, Carlito, where are you going? Where are you now? What are some of the things you're doing adding up? Are you in touch with me? Who are you? Who am I? But as I say, it's even deeper than words because ultimately, contemplative prayer draws us to that place beyond words. St. Augustine says that more things are accomplished in prayer by sighs and tears than by many words. He wrote that in the letter to Donatus. More things are accomplished by sighs and tears than by many words. I just mentioned to you that that deepest experience that you have, your infinite longing. Every now and again you, you, you say, ah, that's coming from that deep place. Can you really put those longings into word? Those infinite longings? Could you ever really just write it out? Here's what it is. No. It's deeper than words. It's deeper. And that's the heart where we need to learn to withdraw and be silent, be quiet for a time each day with God. I'd ask in my parish right now, are you praying with me? <laughs> that, that's me. You're supposed to say amen. So uh, I hope this is, um, I, I feel like this is going in and out a little. Can you hear me in the back? Is it okay? All right, good. Now then, so there's, I just think really, honestly, take that 2563, and if you do nothing else with this paper, cut that out and stick it on your refrigerator door or wherever you stop occasionally and read. Maybe by the curry coffee machine when it's going, you know, it's doing all its thing. You're going to take a minute or two, leave it there, read it a little bit. Ponder, do I know my heart? Do I know what my heart is? Do I know anything about my heart? Or am I running around living an unreflective life and God can never get my attention? You've got to withdraw to your heart because that's where you're going to find God. He's there waiting for you. Like Jesus was waiting for the woman at the well. That's where you'll find Him. And many of us are not in touch with our hearts. Okay. Some Old Testament images about prayer. Um, I, I just list them, and I, I don't have time to develop them all with you, but I, I just want you to notice uh, there's this beautiful line in the book of Genesis. Just a very tender moment. As you know, Adam and Eve had just sinned, and they realized they were naked, and they start covering up. And uh, they're no longer at home with their own bodies. 
They start to cover up and they hear God coming and they hide in the bushes and God has this plaintive cry. Adam! Where are you? Adam! Where are you? Now he knows where they are in physical space. But what he's saying to them is Adam and Eve, but he says Adam, I'll get to that in a minute, but he says Adam, where are you? In other words, your heart just went off my radar. I've lost you. Your yes has gone away. Your open door has been closed. Adam, where are you? Not, where are you? In, are you there in the bushes? Are you behind the tree? But Adam, where are you? Now put your name in that sentence. God is calling everyone here. He's calling your children and some of you have grandchildren. He's saying, put those names in the sentence. Charlie, where are you? Where are you? It's a cry of love. It's not, where are you? I'm going to come and kick your butt for what you did. Right? So there's these, this is beautiful dialogue that sets up and it's painful. So Adam finally steps out. He, he says, well, I heard you coming in the garden, so I hid myself. He says, uh, because I was naked. Well, who, who told you you were naked? Now again, take that question. God's asking you that question. Who told you you were naked? In other words, who told you that you're ugly or that you're inadequate or that you're not pretty enough or you're not able enough or you're not smart enough or you're not rich enough? Who told you those things? I didn't tell you that. You've eaten of the tree that I told you not to eat of. You're listening to the world. Who told you you were naked? Do you know that I love you, that I'm your father? Who told you to be afraid of me? I didn't tell you that. I told you to reverence me. I am your father. But I love you. And there's nothing you can do about it. I love you. Now he calls Adam, not Eve. Some would argue, well, Adam means man, old man. You know, in other words, it's... But, you know, Adam was the head of the household. That's why a man shall leave his father and mother and cling to his wife. Now that doesn't mean the wife doesn't cling to her husband. And it doesn't mean that God is not in search of Eve. But he's... If you will, in calling the head of the household, he's calling the household. Are you praying with me? Okay, so I don't want to get into a lot of biblical study here, but I just hear that cry. And so isn't it a beautiful thing when you go to private prayer time? You hear, Charlie, where are you? Here I am, Lord. Here I am. <gasps> and there sets up then this discussion, this place. We withdraw in our heart and we find God there. And God and we, we begin to pay attention. We listen. We talk. We pour out our heart. But we also listen. 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 We have images of um, prayer in, in, in Abraham. And Moses and David and in the Psalms. And I, I, you know, I could make a sermon out of every one of these. So I've got to be careful here. I, I don't want to spend all day. And I've got to get some other notes to get through. But I want to say this. If you look at Abraham and you look at Moses. They have a very personal relationship with God. You know, Abraham um, was able to hear God's voice and he was up there in uh, Ur, Ur of the Chaldees uh, and I'm sorry, he would, he'd left there and he'd gone to Haran and he was there and then he just heard a word from God, set out to a land that I will show you. How did he hear a word from God? You know, we always have maybe cartoonish ideas that Abraham, set out for a land that I will give you. Oh, okay. And he, but I'm sure that it, he I'm not saying that couldn't have been true, but 
something in his heart. Abraham knew how to withdraw to his heart and listen. And he heard God saying that. And he stepped out. Now Abraham messed up a lot. He went down there and he didn't pay attention. There was a, he didn't really trust God. There was a famine. So he went, off to, he went off to Egypt land. And he got into all kinds of trouble there. He even pimped out his wife. He put, he put his wife Sarah in, in Pharaoh's harem to avoid getting killed himself. And Pharaoh found out about it and said, you, you sinned, my friend. Your God could have killed both of us. I tell you what, you need to go back to where you belong. It took Pharaoh. It took Pharaoh to explain to Abraham where he needed to be. Now, you see what I'm saying. Abraham wasn't a perfect model of prayer right from the beginning. But he knew how to listen. And he did set out. And then he got lost. And he heard and he went back and... Then God said, I'm going to make you a promise. And he heard, you know, I'm going to give you all these numerous offspring. But he, like, well, I don't know how you're going to do that, Lord, because right about now, she's 90 and I'm drawn close on 100. And so once again, he's struggling to listen to God and trust God. But he's still praying and he's still in touch with God, right? And so he screws up a couple more times. He says... Oh, I know what you mean. You must mean that I'm going to adopt my, I'm going to adopt uh, the, the, the son of, my, of my, uh, my handyman here. So I'll do that. He goes, no, he says, not that one. One from your own loins. And then, you know, they, they, they messed up again. He said, well, Sarah said, well, God can't be for real. I'll tell you what, go and uh, take my slave girl, Hagar, and, and have relations with her. And God said once again, no. Now you listen to me, Abraham. Listen to me. And so you see, Abraham is a model of prayer, not because he was perfect, but because he's like you and me. He's trying to figure it all out. And I think you told me this, God, and sometimes we, we mess up and we have to go back and God has to keep talking and say, no, 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 and clarify. Finally, Abraham came to a point in his life when he could say to them, when, he, when God could say to him, I need you now to go and sacrifice. He said, look, all I know, Lord, is I'm going to listen this time. What you're asking is hard. I don't understand it, but I'm listening, Lord. And you know what? I've learned to trust you. Somehow, you're going to take care of this. And he goes through with it. Now you see, Abraham's finally come to a point in his life where he's able to listen to God and obey Him and do what He's told. But that shows a maturing in his prayer, doesn't it? See? So study these. By the way, on my blog, I have an article, Abraham, comma, Hope for the Rest of Us. <laughs> All right? And I, I show that. I, I take a lot of the biblical patriarchs. They have, the, the, the Bible is so beautiful because it doesn't turn these people into you know, lions and, and just you know, perfect people. It, it, they're, they're human and they're struggling and they make mistakes. And So you notice again Moses. Moses uh, was trying to listen to God. and He, he thought, I, I know I somehow need to lead my people out, but at age 40 he ends up murdering a man. God says, you're too proud. I can't use you. Off to the desert with you. And I'll tell you what, I'm going to humble you. And I tell you, he, he says, so he got, he, he got married. That'll humble you. And he's had kids. That, that'll really humble you. And at age 80, God came back to Moses in the burning bush. Moses, Moses. You're finally humble enough. You're leaning on a cane and you stutter when you talk. Now you're weak enough that I can use you. Uh, but he, he negotiates. Uh, 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 bring an Aaron. Uh, anything else, Lord? I want you to. I want you to. And, and Moses is listening. And Moses was great at negotiating with God, wasn't he? You know, what if there's fifty? What if there's forty? And you know, 
he's, he's always in a conversation with God. He goes up on the mountain. He spends 40 days in prayer. Deep prayer with God. And again, God, he, knew, he knew the Lord. But he struggled in that relationship. Now, I don't have time to develop all these. But I just want you to notice David too, right? He was a man after God's own heart. But David struggled. David committed some terrible sins. But somehow he always knew how to find his way back to God and say, I messed up, Lord. And the Lord says, yeah, you did. But I tell you what, I love you. He wrote that beautiful psalm, Have mercy on me, O God, have mercy. And so again, we'll, we'll leave it on. Now let's go on to some of Jesus' teachings on prayer. Um, it says here in the Catechism from 2599, it says, The Son of God became Son of the Virgin and also learned to pray according to His human heart. He learns the formulas of prayer from His father and His mother, and He learns to pray the words and the rhythms of prayer of His people in the synagogue at Nazareth, in the temple in Jerusalem. But His prayer also springs from an otherwise secret source. As He intimates at the age of 12, I must be in my Father's house. Here, the newness of prayer and the fullness of time begins to be revealed. It is his filial prayer, which the Father awaits from his children. So this is a key concept now in New Testament prayer. Prayer, what do we mean by filial? It means the prayer of a son or a daughter directed to their father. What Jesus Christ has done is to bring us back to the heart of the Father. We were dead in our sins. We were separated from the Father. We had no access to the Father. The Father dwells in unapproachable light. And we see that when He died on the cross, the veil in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The heart of God is now opened again to us. The way to the Father is back through Jesus Christ. And in every Mass, the priest says to you, lift up your hearts. Source some cord. Lift up your hearts. As if to say to us, brethren, we're in heaven now. And in our high priest Jesus, we are members of His body. We walk right now into the Holy of Holies where the Father dwells in unapproachable light. And with Jesus, our high priest, we give thanks to the Father. And we sing the song of the highest angels in heaven, that of the cherubim and the seraphim and the Holy of Holies. We now sing, Holy, 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 Lord God, Sabaoth. Because of Jesus Christ and His blood, you have a perfect right to go before the Father with hands lifted up and praise Him. Pray as a son or a daughter. And this key word in the New Testament is Abba. Now, you could teach a parrot to say the word. It's not the word. It's the experience. What is Abba? Abba is, is the word that people use in Aramaic and Hebrew even to this day when they're talking to their father. For example, when my father was alive, I didn't call my father and say, Hello, father. How are you today, father? I said, Dad. Now, it's not baby talk, right? It's just an ordinary word that a son or a daughter calls their father in our culture. Maybe some of you say Papa or, you know, you get the idea. My dad would sign all of his letters, El Dado. <laughs> Dad. So it's not baby talk. It's not baby talk. But it's a very tender word. We make bold to cry out, Abba. St. Paul says, You do not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but a spirit of adoption through which we now cry out with Jesus, Abba. That's the filial prayer. Go before God in confidence because of the blood of Jesus. 
cry out, Abba. And know that whatever barriers there were, Jesus has cleared them away and go before the Father with great confidence and great love, with tender affection, and cry out, Abba, Abba. Now, um, we see some examples of Jesus' vocal prayers, right? They're listed, there's one of the two of them at the bottom of the page here from Matthew 11. At that time, Jesus declared, and here he is praying out loud to the Father, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you've hidden these things from the wise and the learned, but you revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this was well-pleasing in your sight. So you'll notice that any time Jesus prays, he cries out, first of all, he says, Father, and he cries out some word of praise. Now we're going to see that in a minute when we look at the Our Father, the structure of the Our Father. But his first word, whenever he goes before his Father, he says, Father, Abba, Father, I praise you, I thank you. Look at the next one down here in John, John 11. Jesus lifted up his eyes and he said, Father, I thank you. I thank you that you heard me. I know that you always hear me. But I say this for the benefit of the people standing here so that they may believe that you sent me. Oh, Father, Father, I thank you. I praise you. I love you. See, see how Jesus begins his prayers, right? And we'll see that when we look at the Our Father here uh, in just a moment. For example, now turn the page over at Mark 14. Going a little, this is in the garden now, and he's in agony. And he goes, going a little further, he fell to the ground, and he prayed that if it were possible, the hour would pass him by. He said, Abba, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet, not what you will, but what I will. So again, he cries out, Abba, Abba, all things are possible. He praises him. And then he says, here's my request. But nevertheless, I would never want something for myself that you don't want for me. So he prays in trust. He prays in love. He makes his needs known. And all that matters is I know that you hear me whenever I pray. And I know that whatever you want from me is what's best for me. Now here's my pre preference. <laughs> I always say, you know, make your preferences known to God. But don't tell God what to do. You know, some people pray like this. They say, okay, Lord, um, here's the list. See, there's five points there. I need you to take care of all those. And please initial at each one and sign it at the bottom and don't forget to, don't forget to date it. You know, don't tell God what to do. Praise Him. Go before Him with humility. Tell Him, I prefer this, Lord. This is what I'm asking. But Lord, I know whatever you want will be best. I love you. I trust you. I'm making my needs known. You told me you have not because you asked not. So I'm asking and you know, some of the Jewishness, you know, a little negotiation in prayer. Lord, you know? at the end of the day, though, Lord, whatever you want, I'm okay with that. I may not be jumping for joy. It may not be my preferred outcome, but I know it will be best. Because you're my father, and you love me. See? Okay. Now, um, even in his last hours on the cross, or his last words on the cross, he's praying to the Father, right? Some of those last words. Father! Father! You hear that word again, right? Father! Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, he's quoting Psalm 22, and I don't have time to develop it with you, but Psalm 22 is not simply a cry of despair. It is a cry of hope. It's, there's despair and there's hope. There's a dialogue between despair and hope. And guess what wins at the end of the psalm? I'll give you a little hint. Hope. Now, uh, or again, he says here, again, his last words... Father, Father, into your hand. 
I commend my spirit. Father, that word just keeps coming up. See what I mean by filial prayer? Now you see, here too, we, I, I, I should probably say something. I, the time keeps moving on me, but a lot of people struggle with God the Father. They're close to Jesus. Some, some people are close to the Holy Spirit. But a lot of people tell me, and I kind of struggle with the Father. I, he's like kind of the big meanie up there. See, we have a crisis of fatherhood in our culture. A lot of people either didn't know their father or kind of wish they didn't know their father. You know, healthy fatherhood is hard to come by in our culture and that affects how we think of God as father. But I want you to remember this. No one is father like God is father. And all fatherhood on earth takes its origin from God the heavenly father. So even if my earthly father was imperfect, God is a perfect father. And one of the beautiful gifts that Jesus wants to give everyone here is for you to love his father like he does. I don't know if you've noticed, but Jesus was crazy about his father. He loved his father. He talked about his father all the time. He would go away and just pray for hours all night long in desert places, up on mountaintops. Father, father. He loved his father. In my own journey, when I was a younger man, I had a kind of a stormy relationship with my father. My father was a good man, but he did struggle with anger and a few other things. And so as I, I, I was into my, into my 20s and early 30s, I, I, I felt distant from the Heavenly Father. And, but somewhere along the line, Jesus broke through that. And Of all the members of the Trinity now, I'm closest to the Father. I have a very tender love for the Father. I really love to just call on the Father. Abba, Abba. See? And that's the gift that Jesus died to give us, to restore us to the heart of the Father and to restore our heart to the Father. To, you know that word atonement? You can also pronounce it at one mint. If you spell it out, it could be atonement. He made atonement, which means we are now at one mint with the Father. He restored that relationship and He wants to bring it about in your life that you have a tender love for the Father, that filial love. Now then, um, just a couple of parables on prayer. <laughs> they're, they're both kind of funny, you know. Uh, don't say that Jesus didn't have a sense of humor. He actually did uh, have quite a sense of humor. And a lot of that comes out in the parables. So, um, so there, there's this uh, story about the neighbor uh, in the middle of the night who knocks on his neighbor's door. Hey, give me some bread. I had a friend that just came in from out of town. Go away. We're all sleeping here. I don't have time to get open the door. Go away. He keeps knocking. All right, all right. And he finally gives them all the bread he needs just to get rid of them. And if that's the case with the grouchy neighbor, says Jesus, how much more so with my father if you pray to him day and night? And then my favorite one is the, the widow. <laughs> so Jesus tells this parable, right? He says, well, that was a widow. And this widow wore out the judge day after day. She went to the widow. I demand justice from you against my opponent. And day after day, the judge says, go away, old woman. But finally, the judge says to himself, I will render for this woman or she will give me a black eye. Now pay attention to what the judge says. How much more will my father render to you who cry out to him day and night? It's a funny parable. But it's making a serious point. He says that we have to learn how to sometimes persevere in prayer. One of the images of prayer that Jesus has is that we have to seek we have to ask and we have to knock. Now you could ask once, but you notice how seeking implies an ongoing, right? Or knocking. You don't knock like this. That's not how you knock. You knock like this. 
Right? And if they don't answer, you keep... Right? That's, that's a persistent action. So again, part of the teaching that Jesus gives us on prayer is don't just pray once. Keep praying. Wear God out a little bit. Wear Him out. Okay, so... <clears throat> just some teachings on prayer. But we come then, and I have to wrap up now. i got about ten minutes. and um, Just notice that... And I'm not here to really tell you how to pray. Lots of different techniques. Some of these things will be given in other talks. But what I want to say is that Jesus gives us the Our Father. Now, they, 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 said, they, they said, Lord, teach us to pray. And He says, look, He says, when you pray, say... And then He gave us the Our Father. Now the danger is that you think, oh, don't say all those words, just say these words. But the, the, the Our Father is not just a set of words to say. He's giving us a structure for prayer and the spiritual life. And so you see, if the words were so important, every single word, then of course Luke's version would have been identical to Matthew's version, but they're not. They're similar, they're quite similar, but they're there are differences in the wording. So it isn't to say exactly these words. But rather, he's giving us then a teaching on what is prayer? What is the spiritual life? What are some of the elements or the components? And you see that I list them there for you. I love my alliteration. So those are my alliteration. There are basically five things that I think the Lord teaches us about prayer. What is prayer? Well, when we pray, we should relate, we should rejoice, we should receive, request, and repent. So the first point is that we should relate. The prayer begins. Guess what? How does it begin? Father! Our Father! Let me say that one more time. I want to make sure you heard that. Father! Prayer should draw us to the heart of the Father. Filial prayer is the gift to the New Testament Christian, right? It distinguishes us from what went before. This is the gift of Jesus Christ, to pray in these words. Do you hear the word, how it's said in, in church on Sunday? And our, our translation is better now than it used to be, right? Um, at the Savior's command, informed by divine teaching, we dare to say, dare? Yeah, we dare to say, Father! By which we mean, Abba! The, the Latin is even stronger, you know. It, 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 it's, it's a, you know, percepta salutaribus manitri et divina institutione informati audemus dicere. We have the audacity to say, Father. Oh, what a gift. What a gift. So Jesus says, when you pray, remember you're relating. Not to the deity, or to the Godhead, or to the force. You're relating to your Father who loves you. He loves you so much that He sent me. And I've taken you made you a member of my body so that now He sees, when He sees me, He sees you too. Pray to Him. Father, relate to Him. He's your Father. He loves you. Go before Him and ask the Lord for a tender affection for the Father. So that it's not, you could teach a parrot to say these words. It's not the words, it's the experience, the reality. I am your son, I'm your daughter, you're my father, and I love you, and I come before you. So we relate. We're in a relationship. Prayer is about that relationship. We should rejoice. Hallowed be your name, right? <clears throat> it's very brief, but 
I praise you. Your name is holy. I love you, Father. You're great. You're glorious. You've done all things well. Lord, I thank you. Glory to God in the highest and on earth. Peace to people of goodwill. We praise you. We thank you. We bless you. We adore you. I love you, Father. I love you. You're my Father. I love you. I praise you. I thank you. Now, by the way, what I'm really singing is doing some praise. Because we had a very charismatic church in my way of African-American. We don't call it charismatic. We just call it church. <laughs> but we have some church up in there. And I feel so good. And I feel so refreshed. Because I'm doing what I was made for. In the letter to the Ephesians, which we're going through in daily mass, it says this, We were made for the praise of God's glory. You were made to praise Him. And when you praise Him, you're in the groove. You're doing what you were made to do, to give glory, to praise God, and to thank Him. So, you relate, Father. You rejoice, hallowed be your name. Prayer also then, so the prayer involves relating to God personally. It involves rejoicing, that is to say praising Him. It involves then receiving. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Well, this is how are we going to know what His kingdom is and how, how about His will unless we learn to listen. Lord, what would you have me do? So this is where we, we receive, we listen in prayer. We say, Lord, I'm listening, teach me. Maybe it involves reading the scriptures. Maybe you're reading some spiritual reading. But your prayer life, your spiritual life should involve daily listening to God and going to the sources, whether the Bible, good spiritual reading, see, or the catechism. But your life should be, I'm listening, Lord. Teach me. Now sometimes it just involves, what were you saying to me all day long, Lord? You know, that kind of listening. Other times, you should have good spiritual reading. You should have other things going on, right? So you see the vision here. So we relate. We rejoice. We receive. Teach me, Lord. I'm listening, okay? That's the listening part of prayer. Likewise, we should request. Give us this day our daily bread. Now, I don't have time to develop it, but there's a word there that is kind of embarrassing. Right in the middle of the Our Father, there's a Greek word that nobody knows what it means. Uh, give us this day our super substantial bread. Epiousion in the Greek. It's kind of funny. They're right in the middle of the Our Father. Nobody knows what this word means. It's nowhere else in Greek literature. It occurs only twice in the Bible. In Luke's version and in Matthew's version. Epiousion. Give us, the, you know, if you read it, you just translate it deadpan literal. Epi meaning over or above, and usius meaning substance. So super substantial bread. Right? Somehow we settle in on the, on the teaching daily bread, but we don't know. If, I think it's a reference to the Eucharist, y'all. I mean, talk about super substantial bread. Amen? But even the Greek fathers who spoke, that was their mother tongue. They didn't know what it meant. They had, they had disagreements. And so, anyway, long story, but Lord, give us what we need. Give it to us in abundance, Lord. We need you. Please, Lord, help, help, help. Not just for ourselves do we pray. We pray for the world. Pray, Lord, for this old hell-bound, sin-soaked world. Please send your mercy, Lord. Oh, we need your love. We need your mercy. There was a, a nun that was a friend of our family. and <laughs> I always thought she was crazy when I was a teenager. She'd visit us and the news, the TV news would be on. And all through the news she goes, Oh, glory be to God. Oh, Lord of mercy. And I'm like... But you think about it, she, that's a good reaction. You know, you hear political corruption, someone's marriage is breaking up, or someone's been sent to jail, or there was a fire, or there was an earthquake. Shouldn't that be? Lord, have mercy. Lord, help, Lord, help. Instead so we say, oh, wow, glory be to God. Some people's children. We just get cynical and wag our finger. And... You ever think about praying the news? Do you intercede? Do you beg God 
for your needs and the needs of your family and your friends and the world. You just get on your knees and say, Lord, help. That's what the Lord is teaching us here, that our prayer should involve this intercession, right? So we relate, rejoice, receive, request, and then finally repent. We're on our knees and say, Lord, I, I know that I sinned against you, but Lord, the devil's after me and I'm tempted and I'm overwhelmed at times. And Lord, help me. Deliver me from the evil one. And Lord, I repent of my sins. I'm sorry that I've offended you and I love you. Help me never to offend you again. So, you see, now, these are not things that you necessarily do all at one moment, but ideally, your day looks like this. At some point, you're saying, Father. At some point, you're listening. At some point, you're praising. At some point, you're requesting, interceding. And at some point, you're repenting. And that's the structure, not just of, of a prayer, but of your daily life. Your spiritual life. Your prayer life. These elements. And by the way, every good liturgy has them all, right? We praise God, we, we call Him Father, we love Him, we rejoice, we listen to His Word, we make intercessory prayers, we request, and we also repent also. All those things are in any good Mass or any other religious service that we conduct in the church. So, see the idea? It's a model. It's not just words to say. It's a model. What is prayer? It's right there. Alright, it's 11. I have to end. Is there a minute for questions or what do I do? Okay, but just maybe just several because I, I'm I'm right on I'm right at eleven and I think we, I don't want to run you late. So any real quick questions? And... Okay, there are none. Bye. <laughs> All right. Well, okay. I mean, I, I know that it was. I, I apologize because it was a little bit like you know maybe a fire hydrant, you know, <laughs> a lot of stuff there. But again, it's it's. But uh, what I ultimately hope you take away from this talk is this this particular thing: filial prayer. That's the goal. Sons and daughters who love the Father. Who love the Father. And are crying out to Him like sons and daughters. Trusting Him. Loving Him. Obeying Him. Accepting His just punishments. Asking His mercy. But above all, loving Him. Like Jesus loves Him. And the Holy Spirit's in your heart right now with groans and lamentations that you don't even understand. Just groaning and longing to the Father. And trying to give you and me a filial affection, a tender affection of a son or a daughter for their father. That's the work of Jesus and the work of his Holy Spirit dwelling within us. Father, Father, Father. Amen.